Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. So welcome to everyone to episode number 14 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And we're calling this episode, Getting Your Ownership Structure Straight. As you well know, we work with entrepreneurial dentists and we help them scale their business. But all too often, this dentist or these dentists start out with multiple partners in multiple locations, and then they decide they wanna form a management company. And that can be a tricky endeavor especially as it relates to who owns what and where. We're gonna unpack a lot of that today on the podcast. I know you're going to get a lot out of it, so be ready to take some notes and certainly brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee. We're ready to roll on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. So welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am Perrin Desports and I'm your host on today's show. Thank you so much for joining me. And as I prefaced in the introduction, we released a press release not too long ago about a new service that we're offering at Polaris. And the service basically provides a solution for something we call cap table mergers or capitalization table mergers. And this is incredibly important in two facets. I'm gonna unpack the first one as it relates to partnerships today, and I'm gonna unpack the second one as it relates to overall growth strategy from a merger context in a subsequent podcast. But today's episode is gonna talk about capitalization table mergers for partnerships that are forming ultimately a management company. That press release did go into a little bit of detail about some of the scenarios that we find ourselves in working with clients all across the United States. And let me kind of tee this up and tell you the context of it and then tell you the application of it, where it's important and why it's important as you consider your growth strategy. So suffice to say, the clients we work with, and really our target audience, uh, probably most everybody in this audience, is what we call doctor-founded and debt-funded groups. We are uh, we work with clients that are all pre-private equity, in other words. And these doctor-founded, debt-funded groups, debt-funded is another way of saying using bank funds to grow, not using private equity, in other words. All of these groups start off understandably, as one location. It's usually a founder that either buys the the business or starts the business from scratch. And he or she starts out on the journey by themselves in the first location. They are entrepreneurs at heart. They want to own more than one location and they don't want 
the business to be solely dependent upon them and their clinical skills. They want to be able to derive income from the work of associate dentists. This is the same journey that so many of you are familiar with in the audience as you're listening here today. Along the way, you may end up with the opportunity to buy or build a second location or a third or fourth or even a fifth. And it may be that you have the opportunity to do it with a partner. You might have started out in location number one, 100% personally guaranteeing the loan to buy or build that business, and it is 100% yours. But the second location, you might decide to go in 50-50 with a partner. Let's say it's a de novo and you want to hedge your bet a little bit and you want a key doctor in there that's going to help you man the ship and all that kind of good stuff. So y'all are going to uh, co-sign on the loan, each guaranteeing, uh, personally guaranteeing 50% of the obligation there. And both of you are going to work in that location, probably 50-50 or something along those lines. And then there may come an opportunity to buy or build a third location. And let's say that you and your partner in location number two um, also know a third dentist who would be a great partner in that third location. So now we're going to essentially build or potentially buy a third location. Let's do it a third, a third, and a third between those three partners or some fragmented ownership structure um, in terms of hedging your bets on it. So now we've got three locations, one that has three partners, one location that has two partners, and one that has one partner in it. So you can start to see where this goes all of a sudden. You've got different businesses of different size and scope. They're probably different in terms of their growth journey or their their age in terms of tenure, how long they've been open, uh, and the volume of revenues that they're creating. Um, They could be slightly different uh, businesses in terms of context of clinical services offered, um, but they are all producing more than likely a different amount of revenue and a different amount of EBITDA, and they all are probably carrying a different level of debt with them. So now we've got these three locations that all have, the two have fragmented ownership, one that's owned um, 100% by the founder that we said in the beginning. And it all of a sudden dawns on us that, you know what? We'd like to build a 10 location group, but we don't want to build 10 individual locations, all with different levels of ownership. What we'd really like to do is build one cohesive 10 location group. We'd like to have a management company and have common ownership at the top end of the business or at at a, a DSO or management company level And we all want to be owners of the business in that level. So how do we do that? Is there a reason that we should do that or shouldn't do that? What are the pluses and minuses? And what does it mean to all of us individually as owners in the collective business? Sound familiar? It probably should. If this doesn't describe you, you probably know somebody who's involved with a scenario like this. We see it frequently, and I don't know why this is, but this has come up a lot to me personally recently on a number of the calls that I've been on with prospective clients as they describe their scenarios. So I think it's very uh, commonplace because uh, understandably, 
a lot, lot of dentists start out just wanting to own their their own location, one location, one business. And they th then they get an opportunity or they get an itch or it's too good of a deal to turn down or something along those lines. And they go into a second location um, and, and they're opportunistic about it if they're not intentional about it. But the third location, they probably like the way the first two locations have gone. So now they're intentional about location number three. And after location number three is fully constituted, then they decide they want to build a bigger business. This is sort of an incremental thought process. And it's natural to see for entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes, not just dentists or healthcare providers. Okay. So this is not a phenomenon that uh, is unique to our world. This is commonplace relative to expansion, entrepreneurship, and general business ownership. That being said, it does start to create a challenge. There's the challenge around governance and decision-making. And that scenario that I described with those three individual businesses, the way decisions get made in each of those businesses is significantly different. It's really easy to make decisions in the first one because you own it 100%. When you got a 50-50 partner in location two, Decision-making hopefully isn't a challenge if you're on the same page. If you're not on the same page, you can be at loggerheads. And in the third location, if it's an equal, a third, a third, and a third ownership, decision-making, again, hopefully won't be a challenge, but it sure as heck could. And it might not even go the way you want it to if you are only one of three owners and there's an equal vote across the board. Suffice to say, this is not a great way to build a 10 location group with that type of fragmented ownership. And that's why you see a lot of people along their growth journey wanting to form management companies. And the management company can serve several different purposes. We've talked about the administrative services, non-clinical services that a DSO serves for the practices that it manages. That's for efficiencies, economies of scale, increased EBITDA and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's operational in that context, honestly. However, the equity, the ownership component of it is, a, is of even greater importance. And many of you have heard us talk about valuation and specifically valuation multiples at different levels of an organization. We talked, DeWalker and I talked about this in some of our associate equity partnerships because we talked about the opportunity for an associate to own, to earn equity at a practice level or at a management company or DSO or whole co level, meaning further up the food chain. And we talked about valuation multiples at a practice level compared and contrast with a valuation multiple at a management company level. The same principle holds true for owners in the business, not just associates. So the first thought in terms of forming a management company to oversee the growth of the business, to go to 10 locations, just as an example, uh, is certainly for operational reasons, reasons and, and efficiencies of services. But from an ownership context, it's even more important because the valuation multiple at a management company is usually significantly higher than at a practice level. So your equity becomes more valuable 
in a management company. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is it's a heck of a lot easier to govern a business if we all own shares at the same level and our decisions permeate the entire organization versus having to make decisions 10 separate times with a lot of different partners as it relates to each of those individual locations. So corporate governance for a growing business and a multi-location business, certainly one that has different ownership stakes and structures, uh, is more easily achieved in a management company. All right, so there's the administrative services operational piece, there's the corporate governance piece, and the third piece is really how we convert those shares and that ownership from a practice level to a corporate level. And this is where it gets to be a little bit trickier. There are two pieces to this that you want to keep in mind if you find yourself with multiple locations and multiple owners. So the first principle to understand in a scenario like this is that, as I touched on before, all three of those locations produce a different amount of revenue, they produce a different amount of EBITDA, uh, and they may be carrying a different amount of debt that's attributed to each location. For that reason, each location has a different overall valuation. The valuation multiple used to calculate it would, would hopefully be the same it should be the same in most situations for each of those three locations, but the resulting dollar valuation that comes out of it would be different because the EBITDA level is different in each of them. And if you're, if you're taking debt out, you're doing a net equity calculation, then you subtract the amount of debt from the equity that's created in each location and the resulting net equity piece would be significantly different. So just because um, I own 100% of location one and 50% of location two and a third of location three doesn't necessarily make me the majority owner in the business. Well, why is that? Well, if you think about the first location that I own 100% of, let's say that that location generates zero EBITDA. 100% of nothing is, you guessed it nothing right so i own 100% of that business but it's not it doesn't have any value as it relates to an ebitda calculation it might be a new practice we might have just started it up could be a year out of the ground uh, and it's barely even breaking even from a an operational context let alone an equity context so there there are a lot of different factors to consider in that but even 100% equity, even 100% ownership in that business, if there's no EBITDA, there's no resulting valuation. Um, that's the academic argument. There could be a subjective side that it is valuable to the organization for other compelling reasons, but I'm talking about just on a pure EBITDA calculation here. The second and the third locations, uh, the second location, I guess, could be a, a similar context. It could be that it is valued very lowly um, or, uh, or, or marginally in the third location that's a third, a third, and a third could be the most valuable location. It could be carrying no debt or something along those lines. So there's, there's different calculation or there's different um, resulting calculations um, uh, in each of those three locations that we have to consider relative to the ownership of each one. 
And now we're starting to work through the calculations on a per owner basis. So even though the percentages are different in each location, what ends up being something akin to a weighted average in terms of equity, we're now starting to get clarity around how that all looks in one combined merged cap table at a management company level. Okay, so how you convert equity from a practice level to a management company level is mostly science, it's mostly math, truly. Uh, some of it is a little bit of an art to it, depending on some um, extraneous parameters around some of those businesses. We've been involved in those discussions as well with ownership groups. But the first is the pure calculation involved. And what you want to find out what you want to first ascertain, at least, is what is everybody's value at a practice level? And then if we merge it into one combined business, what does everybody's ownership stake result in when it's all combined? So now we see people going from sole owner or majority owner or 50% owner in certain low-valued businesses because they're either new or they're underperforming compared to a, another business. And when we see them merge together, all of a sudden they go from being majority owners to, to distinct minority owners potentially. And what's the psychological impact on that? So there's the, the first piece is the calculation. Frankly, that's kind of the easy piece. You go through the process you run an EBITDA calculation against a common valuation metric, and you have a, a resulting ownership stake in the cap table. So this is just some math. It's complicated math. There's a lot to it. And whoever you get to do it, be it Polaris or somebody else, you want them to be able to justify the methodology they used and how they came up with the answer from an ownership stake standpoint. And that's where we all sit from a number standpoint. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. We've been through several of these with, uh, uh, with other clients, um, some of which were um, pretty short academic exercises that were uh, fairly quickly agreed upon, uh, and others that took a lot more time. Um, and the reason they took a lot more time is because there's a highly emotional component to this. Equity is important. It's scarce. Uh, it's very personal to everyone involved. Um, and if you're going to go through a process where you've built a, a business that's a couple of locations and there's fragmented ownership and, and you realize that you do want to continue growing the business and you want to take all those locations and, and convert everybody's equity into one common cap table at a management company level to, to help facilitate the governance and the growth of the business going forward. There is a lot of merit in doing that. It's the right thing to do because it's only going to get more challenging in terms of leadership and government governance, the more fragmented you get with the more locations. So I would encourage you to absolutely do it sooner rather than later it will ultimately be probably less cost to do it as well. That being said, if you're committed to going down this path, just getting to the mathematical answer in terms of the numbers 
is really less than half your battle most of the time. I can't impress upon you enough that this is a highly emotional discussion between people who we want to be partners, who we want to be in the boat with us, and we all want to be rowing in the same direction because the reason we're all wanting to do this is to build a big a business bigger than ourselves. And if you can reach somebody on that level and cut through some of the emotional component behind it, you stand a chance of being successful. But it is a challenge. It's been a challenge in every one of these discussions that DeWalker and I have led, uh, and some of them have been more successful than others, candidly. So I say this because there's, again, there's the mathematical computation, the academic piece of it, and that sort of is what it is. And then there's the other piece that's the emotional component. And, and that's where uh, you have to take your time to get through it because you really don't, you, you really do want everybody um, uh, being of the same mindset going forward together and doing it willingly, honestly. And, and that's, a, um, that's a very significant component to the process that all too often people aren't aware of or they don't give um, ample consideration to. I'll say. Um, the third piece that you may want to consider on this is the equalization of the cap table. So what do I mean by that? So in that prior example that I used uh, along the three locations, and I said I was 100% on location number one, I had a 50-50 partner on location number two, and it was a third, a third, and a third on location number three. So that's a total of three partners, all with differing levels of ownership once we merge them into a, a management company level, right? So do we want, um, the, 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 the probability is that once we convert everyone's equity to one common cap table level, that we're not going to be a third, a third, and a third owner. It's going to result in um, a disparity. It could be one person owns 90%, somebody owns 8%, and somebody owns 2%, or it might be um, a 60-20-20, or it could be something like a 50-25-25. And, and now the question becomes, based on everybody's uh, newly calculated ownership in the combined business, do we want all of the partners to be equal in terms of ownership percentages? You don't have to do this, but again, uh, sooner, if you're going to do it sooner rather than later is the time to do it. And, and arguably as you're doing a cap table conversion like this, that's the time to do it. So how does that work? Well, now we have some academic exercise that's produced some percentage ownership in a combined cap table. And now we all know where we stand. So if it's a scenario where somebody owns 50% of the business and the other two partners each own 25%, in order to equalize that, it means that the person who owns 50% of the business is going to sell a little bit over 16% of his or her shares. And the two people who own 25% are each going to buy a little bit more than 8% from that seller in this, in this context. There will be cash that trades hands because equity has value, 
Uh, and sometimes the cash that trades hands needs to be financed because it's a large amount. So almost always there is a, a funding mechanism built into this. It could be a shareholder loan. We typically don't recommend that, but you can do it that way. Or it might be a bank financed instrument, which is usually the right way to go about it. It's the right way because the bank holds the, the note. Obviously, it's usually about a seven to 10 year term, could be five if it's not that large a number. Um, but obviously the seller, in this case, that person who owned 50%, gets his or her cash for the shares up front. They're not strung out over a long period of time at a nominal discount rate. So that's a good thing to kind of keep the transaction cleaner, if you will, from a context of uh, using a bank to finance it. The reason that you might want to equalize shares is because it makes things a little bit easier in terms of corporate governance going forward because we decisions impact all of us all, all but equally, I guess, um, if, we, if our shares are all um, the same percentage in the cap table. So if we decide to undertake something like an associate equity model and we're all going to take dilution to do that and we decide that's the right thing to do, it's all going to impact, it's going to impact each one of us equally. Whereas if somebody owns 50% and the other two own 25%, it's going to impact us pro rata according to our percentage ownership of the overall business. So it tends to keep things a little bit cleaner if everybody, if you take this opportunity to equalize the cap table, but you're certainly not obligated to do that. And, and occasionally um, it's, uh, it's even too um, burdensome on those that are buying up due to, due to the disparity in, uh, in ownership stakes. Could be a scenario whether if it was like that 90%, 8%, and 2% that I mentioned before, it might be that you you offer the minority partners uh, an opportunity to buy up some level of shares, but maybe not to the point of equalizing all of it due to the debt burden involved. So I, I know this is a, a lot to work through and to process mentally speaking, but this is a very real scenario. And it really impacts the earlier stage businesses that maybe don't intend to build a group practice right out the shoots, but their growth strategy in the early stages has been what I would call opportunistic um, and, and maybe even a bit random, if I'm being honest. Uh, and sometimes they do it with partners and sometimes they don't. Uh, and what you get is sometimes um, a little bit of a challenge <laughs> when it comes to, uh, to growing and governing the business. Obviously, if the intent is to build a larger business and to really uh, focus on the growth of the business in terms of expanding the number of locations and potentially expanding the ownership structure of the business. You really want to get your cap table um, situated from a partnership context early on, as early on as you possibly can, because these types of challenges um, don't get easier, they don't get less emotional and they don't get less costly later down the road. That's really the key takeaway. If you're confronting this scenario, my recommendation to you is to deal with it sooner rather than later, bite the bullet, 
get this, the equity structure and the legal structure straight and move forward in unison lockstep together uh, to build a bigger business. But just deferring it and saying, we'll deal with that uh, way down the road creates massive problems that has uh, a lot, uh, usually a lot greater financial impact, honestly, in the business. And sometimes it can compromise the business outright. And I'd like to see you avoid that at all costs. Hopefully this gives you a little bit of insight into partnerships as it relates to cap tables. Next time on the podcast, we're going to talk about um, cap tables and specifically cap table mergers from an, uh, an acquisition standpoint or from a growth strategy standpoint. And I know you'll, uh, you'll be wanting to, to take notes on that one. I think it'll be very illustrative for some of our larger footprint businesses that might help them uh, think about their growth strategy slightly differently than they are right now. Hopefully this was beneficial for you. Uh, we have gotten a lot of questions. And once again, it's, uh, it's something that we've encountered um, uh, you know, frequently lately. I'm not sure why that is, but it certainly has been a, a, a more uh, recent phenomenon for us. If you got questions around it, suffice to say, you can uh, send me an email at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Once again, thanks to everybody for joining me on the show today. Um, I hope you found that uh, prior episode about partnerships and cap table mergers to be valuable, uh, especially for those that are in the earlier stages of their uh, their growth strategy. Finally, on the something new, noteworthy, and cool front, um, I have over the last probably two years gotten. I'm going away from. I'll put it this way. I'm going away from. Um, digital technology in some context. Uh, and I'm going to give you um, two aspects of that today. I, I, I can't get away from my cell phone. I think we're all slaves to our phone and it's a point of convenience. That's for sure. I could, I could never live without it. It goes without saying I do everything with it. Um, that being said, I'm trying to distance myself a little bit from it and be less dependent on it. Um, I'm trying to also read more books that are hardback in nature versus on a, an iPad or a Kindle or an electronic device like that. Electronic devices are super convenient. They're always at our beck and call. Um, they're usually easily transportable, but there's something for me about turning the pages in an actual book and reading the book, holding it in my hands. I also like to highlight dog ear pages and you know, scribble in the margins and do all that kind of stuff. So I find that I read better, um, you know, with a hardback book. One other thing I do a lot better is journaling with a hardback book and keeping um, sort of a, a journal that's a hardback day timer as well as a journal and, and helps me goal set. Uh, and the one I've tried a lot of different ones. The one that I like best is something called the self journal, S E L F journal. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's from a, a company called best self. And this is something that, uh, 
I've been using for a couple of years now. Um, and I, I use it fairly religiously. I don't know if that's a very good term or not, but I'm, I'm pretty consistent about it. How about that? Uh, and you know, it allows me to, to plan my day and plan my week. Each journal has, um, about a 90 day continuum. So the idea is that you're planning on a quarterly basis. And for those who've been followers of, uh, myself and DeWalker for a while, you know, that we're big fans of, um, uh, the entrepreneurial operating system or EOS and the book traction and Gino Wickman and all that kind of good jazz. And we, we worked with, uh, uh, an EOS implementer or EOS coach named Ben Getz um, uh, at the prior company and, and had tremendous success with that. So we, we're we big fans of like planning in 90-day increments, I'll say. And the self-journal is something that um, closely mimics EOS. It's, it's not the same thing for sure. Um, and it does have the opportunity to, to journal and to scribble and to make notes it's got a day timer. It's got a week um, at a glance in terms of goal setting and like weekly accomplishments. You set three major goals for the quarter and the milestones that you need to hit. So this works really well with the strategic coach application um, and the uh, impact filter that I think I mentioned in a in a prior episode. Um, and it also has, as simple as this may sound, a 90-day blank calendar in the very beginning. So when you get it, you plan out your, your 90 days to the best of your ability in terms of what the commitments are that you have. Obviously update them all along the way. You set your goals for the quarter. You start breaking down your habits in terms of what you want to course correct or um, uh, follow through with um, even key meetings and certain things you want to do and accomplish over the 90 days. Then you have a weekly component and then it's broken down into a day by day. And there are a bunch of scribble pages in the end to take notes and, and everything like that. I love being able to work with a pen in my hand, um, make notes, draw, and also, frankly, kind of plan about two weeks in advance. The self-journal helps me do that. Um, and it's different than looking on your iPhone at the calendar for the next day or next month. Yeah, the iPhone syncs with my Microsoft Outlook, and some people sync their family calendars with their spouses and kids and all that other kind of jazz. It's really efficient for all that. Again, I can't live without my iPhone. I love my self-journal. Um, there's something about having a pen in my hand making notes, a cup of coffee, the quiet morning, get the opportunity to journal a little bit, and also having space to uh, write down a couple of points of gratitude. Um, the older I get, um, I find myself trying to reinforce positive habits and take a second to really recognize how fortunate I am and how blessed um, DeWalker and I are for all of you in the audience, but also for things dealing with my family. Um, and, and I am grateful for that. And this is something that tends to reinforce that. All of us who are high performers, uh, achievers, we're very driven. We're, we're motivated entrepreneurs. And we tend to, to get caught up in business a lot um, because that's, that's the juice. That's what we love doing. Uh, and it's what provides us a lot of fulfillment. 
but sometimes um, it's okay to stop and smell the roses on accomplishments, as they say. And sometimes it's also nice just to say, you know what, I'm just grateful that it was a beautiful sunrise this morning, or I'm very grateful that, you know, my dog is sitting at my feet snoring after I fed him in the morning while I'm drinking a cup of coffee in, in the quiet of the morning, or I'm excited uh, and grateful about the opportunity that I had last night to read a book to my daughter as she fell asleep. It's things like that, that if we don't slow down and, and recognize them, then we tend to lose sight of them. And incrementally, they're out of sight, out of mind, and, and we're no longer cognizant of them. And I don't want to end up in that scenario. And I think having a journal that I write in every day that, that caters to my um, type A personality and my drive to be a successful entrepreneur, but doesn't detract from the things that are really important in life is a nice combination of what this thing does. So for those of you who are out there that, that um, uh, are either into journaling and writing your thoughts or using more of a hardback day timer, and you're trying to find something that complements both, um, this is the closest thing I've come uh, that I've found that really that really does all of that, uh, and I really do enjoy it. Uh, and it's a little bit of that um, escapism on a daily basis. So I'll link to it in the show notes. I hope that that gives you something to um, to consider as uh, as you may want to make some changes in your life. But it really has helped and and made a, a change in mine. So I, I recommend it highly, and I'm uh, glad I had the opportunity to share it with you today. So that was a pretty fun episode overall. I, I obviously hope you got a lot out of it, um, and and I hope that you're you're getting a lot out of the uh, uh, the podcast overall. Our our subscriber numbers and our our downloads um, continue to go in the right direction. So I I'd like to think that we're making an impact. Uh, everybody out there, we certainly value the ratings that you give us. Um, I do look at that a lot, and I also look at the the comments and compliments um, that we uh, that we get on the. The, uh, the podcast, much like Tooth.AP recently left last month. They said, Perrin and DeWalker are amazing at, at diving into hot topics and giving honest expert opinions on the subject matter. Always excited for the next episode to come. And Perrin is spot on about Keurig coffee being awful. <laughs> so you can add whatever uh, types of comments you want. Um, I'll probably read them on the air. And, and I think I know which AP that is that left it out there in the uh, uh, in our in our subscriber base, right, Adam? So we'll we'll cheer a cup of good espresso the next time we're get we're together, my friend. I certainly appreciate the rating that you gave us and everybody else has, and I really value and am grateful for everybody who's in our audience. If you do have questions and you like for me to. Uh, to respond or even answer them on the air, I'm happy to do that. You can reach me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And of course, you can find out more about us off of our website at www.PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.